Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, a friend of mine, Peter Wimberger, who's a prof at the University of Puget Sound, uh, told me about you and thought you'd be a good guest. How do you know Peter? Uh, well, I don't know Peter super well, but we've been collaborating a little bit on a gray-crowned Rosie Finch study on Mount Rainier oh. with, some, with some folks from Washington State University. So I, I've still never actually met him face-to-face, but we've, we've Zoomed several times, and um, yeah, so that's how I know him. Yeah. Peter is a really smart, really fun guy. He's a birder. He lives a couple of miles from me and I get to see him in the field. And uh, he also runs the the museum, the Natural History Museum at UPS. Is a cur- yeah. I think you call it curator or whatever you call it, that yeah. he runs that place. And it is just this incredible place. Gosh. It's, <laughs> yeah. Has, yeah. I'll have to it, go visit sometimes. He, he, yeah. yeah. He seems like a great guy. So Peter's running this crazy study on ice worms at Mount Rainier. He hikes way up high, you know, way up to Camp Muir, you know, 10, 11,000 feet and takes samples of the ice fields up there and tests them for these worms. I didn't even know there were worms in ice. Yeah. And that that's why that, that's where I've gotten involved is um, because the rosy finches eat the ice worms. And so we're trying to understand a bit more about that on, on um, the Paradise Glacier on Mount Rainier. Yeah, that was my uh, my guess is that's what they do after he told me about that. I said, Peter, I bet they're eating those worms. He said, they are, because you know, that's how we look for them. But when you hike up there, you look for a little remaining snow and around the edges of the snow where it's starting to melt, you often find the rosy finches. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So you are a PhD student at the University of Idaho now, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. What are you? What's your work? So I am broadly studying bird migration. And my kind of the my my taxonomic species of interest, uh, my primary species of interest is the rough-legged hawk. Oh, okay. And we are tracking rough-legged hawk migratory movements using GPS transmitters. Um, and for my PhD, I'm I'm particularly interested in um, why some individual birds migrate farther than others and what yeah. might explain those differences, you know, between some birds that migrate short distances versus some that, that migrate longer distances. And then I'm, I'm broadly interested in that same question in all birds as well. Kind of what, what influences how far birds migrate generally, um, you know, outside of rough-legged hawks, um, which is kind of the, the main species I'm working with. Do you have a hypothesis uh, for the rough-leggeds? We have several. There's, um, up to six different hypotheses that we're hoping to test with rough-legged hawks, some having to do with, with body size, you know, how large or small birds are. Some have to do with um, their breeding ecology. Some have more to do with other aspects of the bird's morphology. Some have to do with aspects of their behavior. Um, so there's a whole bunch of hypotheses that we're, that we're hoping to test anyway. Sure. Uh, does it, it seems like, yeah, I don't know. It seems like we get, certain color variations. I, I don't even know how. I think it's really hard to tell male from female and mature from immature rough legged. It they, seems like there's a lot of overlap to me. But does it seem like it's a... I guess I just thought it was the males went farther or the males didn't go as far or something like that. Yeah, the general thought based on like observational work from the wintering grounds is that males migrate farther than females, at least mm-hmm. among adult birds. Okay. Um, but we still don't really have a great understanding of why that is. Um, and 
as you were saying, there, there's also just a ton of overlap too. You know, it's, it's, it's not as if all males migrate farther than all females. There's a lot of overlap there. Um, and so trying to understand some of those nuances is, is what we're interested in. And, and no, nobody's tried to answer that question with, you know, actual movement data, knowing exactly how far the birds migrate. It, it, it's all just been from watching and observing birds on the wintering grounds and, and assuming that birds you see are, are either males or females or otherwise. Sure. Do the birds that we see here, do they set up a winter range and they come a certain place and hang out in a general area for the winter or they really roam a lot? Um, it depends, which is probably something you'll hear me say a lot, but it, you know, <laughs> some, some, some birds do come back to the same place every winter, but other birds don't. And some individuals do that sometimes, you know, they might come back to the same place two years in a row, but then the, the next winter they'll go somewhere different. And that, you know, that it's really interesting, that variation, uh, among individuals, some, some individuals that just go back to the same spot every winter and then other birds seem to not have nearly as much fidelity to a single wintering site. Um, hmm. and you know, we, again, we don't really understand why th those differences occur among individuals, but there, there are some really interesting differences there that, that we're seeing from the movement data. So for listeners who don't know much about rough-legged hawks, they are a, a northern breeding species and they winter, at least uh, some number of them winter in the northern tier down a little bit, maybe even farther in, in the U.S. and in southern yeah. Canada. Is that a fair? Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're a complete migrant. So they, they breed in the Arctic and subarctic in Alaska and Canada. Um, they're also found in the old world as well in, in Eurasia, breeding in Eurasia. And then in, in North America, they do a complete migration to their winter range, which is generally the lower 48 of the United States, although there are birds that occur in um, southern Canada, especially in the east. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. They're more common here in the west than they are in the east, aren't they? Uh, generally speaking, yes. Um, especially like west of the Mississippi, they're generally more abundant in the winter than east of the Mississippi. Okay. Uh, which may be, you know, they're, um, rough-legged hawks are kind of an open country species. They like mm -hmm. more treeless habitat than other raptors. And so there, there's just more of that kind of habitat okay. uh, so it may as be you go just west of the Mississippi. More places for them to hang out here than there are in the east because exactly. exactly. more trees and cities in the east could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Uh, they're always the species that uh, we try to get every winter either go to Skagit or out to eastern Washington or someplace and then every once in a while we get lucky and get one in Pierce County so <laughs> well there's there's lots of them over here where, where I live in North Idaho um, but yeah I know that the closer you get to the coast again I think there's just less suitable habitat for them so you just don't see as many could well be uh, you have done a lot of work with raptors. I, you sent me your CV and oh my goodness you have done some incredibly cool stuff I thought of the things you've done that you listed on your CV, the work with Jeer Falcons in Alaska had to be about as cool as it gets. I mean, <laughs> tell me about that. That, that was certainly a highlight. Um, I, I put a, a full-time job on hold so that I could go work that position. Um, but yeah, that, that was, I, I was working with a good friend and colleague of mine, Bryce Robinson, who was doing his master's work at Boise State University. Um, I had recently completed my master's work at Boise State. Um, and so, you know, the first thing I decided to do after I graduated was to go be a field tech for another person that was still a student at the university. But um, <laughs> yeah, Bryce was interested in geofalcon diet 
during the nesting season. And so we were um, finding jeer falcon nests. We were working in Western Alaska on the Seward Peninsula, which is, um, you know, we were based out of Nome and uh, we were finding jeer falcon nests. And then we were repelling into the nests and installing motion activated cameras at the nest to oh. document adults bringing in prey during the breeding season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was primarily the, the field work that we were doing was just identifying nests and then going in and installing the cameras and then periodically checking the cameras to download data and, and all that. And then Bryce subsequently for his um, master's analysis, you know, analyzed all of uh, the photos, um, identifying prey items. And So what do they eat? Well, they eat a lot of ptarmigan, um, <laughs> which is not unexpected, but you know, one of the really interesting things that Bryce found is that, you know, when they, when they aren't eating ptarmigan, kind of their, their primary, you know, maybe backup prey, you'd call it are ground mm-hmm. squirrels, um, really? Arctic ground squirrels, which seem to be quite important, particularly in years when maybe ptarmigan aren't as abundant or available on the landscape. And they okay. also eat a lot of, um, smaller birds, shorebirds, passerines, and, um, they, they eat a lot of small, other small mammals, lemmings, voles, and things like that. But I think it's primarily ptarmigan and, and ground squirrels were you know, the two big prey items that, that popped out. Okay. I, around here, I, I, we don't get to see them very often. We've been lucky this winter and had a, a very, very cooperative cheer down at, uh, at near Westport at West Haven State Park that, uh, is hanging out on a utility pole line there and just, uh, get to sit watch watch that bird sit there is pretty cool but i think of them as hunting ducks in the winter is that uh oh yeah that's a good i think it depends on where they are like i know i know there's deer falcons that show up uh in parts of like the prairie provinces in canada and they tend to hang around um like grain silos where pigeon flocks um sure are tend to be found and so i i but you know maybe where you are closer to the coast it might be more waterfowl Um, yeah but Probably a lot, a, a lot of, a lot of like small to medium sized birds, like wherever they are, you know. They probably take whatever they feel like, really, honestly. Well, like yeah, I can... mean, they can pretty much take whatever they want, right? <laughs> yeah. so whatever's are, available. They yeah. are the top of the top of the flying yep. bird uh, chain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Uh, and you've also done work with uh, California condors. Uh, what was that work? Yeah, con- that, that was my intro to raptors was working with California condors. And um, I have a huge soft spot for condors because of that. And uh, I, I initially started working in Southern California, in that population. I did an internship there. And then I moved to the Arizona Utah population, which is managed by the Peregrine Fund. And I worked, I worked there for two years, um, two and a half years in total on California condors. And uh, it was great. I mean, it's... Um, you know, they're, they're a conservation success story where, you know, they were down to 22 individuals in the eighties and now there's hundreds of condors, but they're also still endangered and, and not out of the woods yet. They have some big conservation threats that are still impacting their populations very heavily. Um, that will mean continued management for condors until some of those conservation threats can be removed from the landscape. But I mean, really rewarding work just because they are so endangered that, um, every bird is special um, and anything you can do to help them, you just, you feel like you're making a huge difference because there's just so few of them left, you know? They are incredible. I, I saw my first condor 
in between when they had been all captured and when they were just starting to be released and they mm. weren't listable yet at the north uh oh the north rim, rim. north yeah. rim of the grand canyon and uh, i was out on that little walkway there and one flew just it's like it's like a small airplane flying about 40 feet overhead it's oh my goodness how can a bird that big actually get in the air it was just spectacular yeah they're they're massive they're absolutely massive birds and they're really heavy too you know they're like 20 to 25 pounds so they're not yeah not only do they have a large wingspan but they're really heavy too yeah so they must have to eat a lot they do i mean that but um you know being scavengers they can also go long periods of time without eating but then when they do eat they eat a lot (laughs) (laughs) i'm Um, guessing yeah (laughs) yeah uh am i right in remembering that lead poisoning is still one of their big uh big dangers yeah, lead, lead poisoning is really the issue still impacting condors, and um, it's more or less the primary reason why the populations are still so heavily managed. If, if it, because um, you know when when you're working with the species, you see it firsthand. And, but essentially, every year, sometimes multiple times a year, usually around the the fall big game hunting seasons or, or sure. thereafter, we would do a, a, a targeted campaign to try to trap every single condor in the population and and test them for lead exposure Um, wow and many birds would have lead exposure and many birds would have it to the extent that we would need to bring the birds into temporary captivity and treat them for lead poisoning how do you treat lead poisoning is it like you would treat it in humans with uh what they call it call uh chelation chelation is what i'm trying to say yes yeah it's you know i I don't know as much about how it's treated in humans but it's probably pretty similar but essentially what we would do is we would bring them into a temporary field enclosure and um, we would two times a day for five days we would give them a chelation treatment and then we would retest them to see if their lead level had come down Mm -hmm. and then we would give them a a, you know a, a break from the chelation treatment test them if their blood concentrations had come down to to uh, some threshold that we identified we would release them back into the wild population and if they Mm -hmm. hadn't we would continue with another round of chelation treatment so it's but it's you know treating bird you know giving birds those chelation treatments is pretty stressful on the birds oh i'm sure Um, i mean not as stressful as just succumbing to the effects of lead poisoning right but uh, no it's still quite stressful on them and stressful on us too sometimes we would have 10 to 20 birds in captivity and having to treat all of those birds twice a day. Oh my goodness. Um, is like a yeah. fairly large undertaking. Um, yeah. And so that it, that's it, an intravenous treatment, isn't it? We would inject it, uh, man, this is like 10 years ago now, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm quite sure we would inject it into the breast muscle. Oh, well, intramuscular. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So parenteral, but not, uh, not mm-hmm. IV. Yeah. Sometimes okay. we would have to give birds intravenous fluids, IV fluids, if they were, becoming very dehydrated or mm-hmm. because one of the side effects of lead toxicity is the inability to digest food basically like your your muscles just stop working and that includes okay. your the, the muscles in your gi tract and sure. so for some birds we would have to give them fluids if they just weren't able to get enough fluids through the food that they were eating and that we were providing them mm-hmm. you also did work with hawk watch international what did you do with them I did. I did a lot of. I did a lot of things for Hawkwatch. I I worked with them for four years as their conservation biologist, and it, you know, yeah, they're they're a great organization that does a lot of great um, raptor conservation and, and education and long term monitoring work. And so I, 
worked on a bunch of different projects. Um, you know, that Hawkwatch has the largest network of raptor migration sites in North America. And so I was involved in kind of helping to manage the logistics of that network along with several other people at Hawkwatch. And we also did a lot of Golden Eagle work, uh, mostly breeding work, uh, putting transmitters on nestling Golden Eagles, mostly in, in Utah. We were also working on a study to look at the effects of vehicle collisions on eagles, primarily yeah. in the wintertime when they're scavenging on roadkill. Mm -hmm. um, eagles tend to get whacked by cars quite quite a bit. Um, and then I did some work with short-eared owls. Um, I did a lot of wintering raptor work, some, some citizen science, or some community science work on wintering raptors and short-eared owls. And then um, I also started working on um, kind of outfitting rough-legged hawks with GPS transmitters when I was working for Hawkwatch, which, which dovetailed into the PhD that I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. So the GPS transmitters that you use, uh, there, there are a lot of different kinds of those. I mean, I oh, know yeah. some, some are different by the size of the bird, mm -hmm. uh, it, but uh, what, what sort of transmitters do you use on a big bird like a rough-legged hawk? Yeah, there's, you know, the, working with larger birds is really nice because there are a lot of options when it comes to GPS tracking devices, um, and the options are quite good because the birds are large, so they can handle a larger transmitter, which which means it can handle a transmitter with a larger battery or a larger solar panel, which ultimately means that the transmitter is going to last longer and provide mm -hmm. you with more data points, you know, more location fixes on where the bird is and how often you get those fixes is just better for larger birds because the transmitters are bigger. Sure. Um, but you know, we we've put at least uh, transmitters from four different manufacturers on rough-legged hawks, um, but they're mostly like two types. One type is kind of the the traditional like PTT satellite transmitters, which um, communicate through the Argos satellite network. Um, okay. And so they they give you data year-round all the time. Like even when the birds are up in the Arctic, the transmitters are just communicating through the satellites and you're just getting more or less real-time data of where the birds okay. are. And then the second type of transmitter are these newer, um, although they're not that new anymore, um, these GSM transmitters that work through the cellular network. And so they, they acquire GPS fixes and then they transmit, instead of transmitting the data through a satellite, they transmit the data through the cellular network, just like okay. sending a text message or something. And so, so you have to have a cell network. <laughs> yeah. The, the, so essentially like the transmitter is like a cell phone and uh -huh. when it's, when it's in service, it will be sending you data all the time. Uh -huh. um, when the transmitter goes out of cell service, which for our rough legged hawks is every single bird for like six months out of the year when they're up in the Arctic, <laughs> there's sure. no cell phone service up there. Um, the transmitters store locations on board. Oh, and okay. then the next time they come in contact with the cell phone tower, they will transmit all of that backlog data to us. So you get data, you just don't get it real time. Exactly. And, you know, for those GSM transmitters, if something happens to the bird or the transmitter when they're out of cell phone service, you know, maybe the transmitter falls off or the bird dies or something right. like that. Um, you essentially never know what happens to the bird because the sure. transmitter never comes back in the cell phone service. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a risk there. So what's um, better about those? Why would you they're use cheap, those? They're, they're cheaper. They don't cost as much money as the, okay. as the satellite transmitters do. 
that's a good reason. <laughs> and they're like cheaper by a lot, like a third to a quarter of the price. Okay. So, Are they smaller also or? Uh, no, a similar size. Yeah. They're all kind of the, what smaller. we put on rough legged hawks are like 22 to 30 gram units. So small enough for a bird that size. It's not a big impact. Yeah. Yeah. We, we try to target mo- most folks working, putting transmitters on birds, try to target a 3% threshold where they don't, you know, they, they want the transmitter to be 3% or less of the bird's overall body weight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So besides just raptor work and more kind of hard science work, you've had this cool job as, as with a video company. Yeah, I, in, in what this afternoon I had a few minutes before I, uh, before I got to talk with you. And so I uh, looked on YouTube and looked up the blue mate, uh, Bluebird Man documentary that you produced, and I think I saw that some time ago. But it is a cool video. Uh, tell me about that work. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so when I was doing my master's in Boise, um, I helped start this nonprofit with a friend of mine, where the goal of the nonprofit was essentially to produce video content to support animal conservation, more or less. Mm-hmm. And the, the first project that came out of the formation of that nonprofit was a film about California condors. Um, uh-huh. Because myself and a friend of mine who started the nonprofit, we, we had both worked with California condors together. Okay. Yeah. And then when I, when I was living in Boise, I, I had the, um, the great pleasure of, of meeting um, Al Larson, who uh, is kind of the focus of the Bluebird Man documentary. And right. He's, you know, this... 90 plus year old man who basically started uh, monitoring bluebird nest boxes after retiring um, and has now been doing it for well over 30 years. Just this amazing long-term data set of um, mountain and Western bluebird boxes in Southwest Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we just wanted to tell his story of um, just the amazing work that he's done with bluebirds over the last several decades and he, he continues to work with bluebirds even today and he's in his up he's approaching 100 years old now he's he, oh he's, he's getting help from from other folks now but um he's still out there you know checking checking his bluebird boxes and, and banding nestlings and uh it's yeah and he's just a fantastic human and yeah we just kind of wanted to, to tell his story and and how it relates to um conservation of, of bluebirds generally it's a cool story. Uh, I, I, my family has a little bluebird experience. We used to go, when my kids were young, we would go to the Audubon annual camp out or whatever you, they call it at, mm-hmm. uh, at Weenus Campground. And, and uh, on the Umptatum Road there, the, I think it's the Yakima Audubon Society. One of the Audubon Societies has a, a big bluebird trail. It's maybe two or three hundred boxes that mm-hmm. goes up and over the hill. So on the lower elevations, you get mostly western bluebirds. In the upper elevations, you get more mountain bluebirds. And, and uh, it is one, on one of the days of that, uh, you could volunteer to go check, I think, 10 or 20 of those boxes or something like that. And They'd give you the the clipboard and all of the data you're supposed to collect. And my kids and, and my wife and I went out and did that. And it was really a cool experience for the kids. And cool for me too, I yeah. have to say. But a really great experience. And we uh, tempted us to, we for each year for Christmas, we would buy the kids. Uh, we'd sponsor a couple of Bluebird boxes for each of the kids. And we'd get a letter every year about, yeah, your box uh, had four mountain Bluebirds in the first clutch. And, and it was just <laughs> really cool. cool stuff. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's great outreach opportunity. And, um, yeah, Al, 
Fail in Idaho, he, you know, he, he takes folks out with him too. And he'll, he'll do field, field trips out to the nest boxes. He, he has something like two to 400 nest boxes that he, that he was monitoring more or less on his own for, yeah. for decades and decades. And that's a huge commitment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that, that's just what he wanted to do. He loved it. He still loves it. Um, yeah. So you have been a, a researcher and a filmmaker regarding birds. Uh, tell me your birding story. How did you uh, get involved with all of this? Yeah, um, you know, I I kind of fell into birds. I wasn't I wasn't one of those people that was like birding since they were five years old or something. I really wish I had been because I I grew up in upstate New York and on a really nice piece of land that would have been great to bird. <clears throat> I have a great time birding there when I go home now, but I just think about all the stuff I probably missed when I was a kid. But yeah, I didn't really get into birds until after I finished my undergraduate degree. And okay. I, I knew I wanted to work with wild animals in, in some form, but I didn't really know, you know, which taxonomic group I wanted to specialize in or anything mm-hmm. like that. And then it, it just so happened that the first ever job that I got was working with birds. Um, you know, there, there's more people interested in getting into biology and field biology. There, there's more bird jobs to go around than probably any other taxonomic group, I would say. Um, and so it just so happened that the first job I got was working with songbirds in the presidential mountains in New Hampshire. And so I spent a summer doing point counts um, in New Hampshire and I thought, you know, birds are cool, but I kind of want to see what else is out there. And so I, I kind of dabbled in in some fish work, and I found that fish weren't really for me. I tried to get a mammal job, but mammal jobs are really hard. They're they're not. There's not very many of them, and they're hard to get. And so basically, the next job I got was working with condors, and then I worked mm-hmm. with condors for two and a half years, and 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 then that's really where I kind of fell in love with birds. Yeah, well, the Calif- the whole California area is a fabulous birding community too. I mean, there are just all sorts of birders around. Yeah, for sure. But again, like when I, you know, I didn't really get into birding until much later. Like when I when I worked in Southern California on California condors, I was not a birder. I was oh. just wholly obsessed with California condors and nothing else. Um, and so I really <laughs> the, the wish I had been, I really wish I had been in North America, you know, now, I know. I mean, I wish I had been a birder cause I was working in just some amazing habitats in Southern California that I, I kind of kick myself now that I wasn't more of a birder cause I probably could have seen some really cool stuff, but I just wasn't paying attention back then. Um, if I had to do it again, you know, I, maybe I wouldn't have been as good of a condor, condor biologist because I would have been obsessing over all the other birds that I was mm-hmm. seeing. Um, but yeah, I didn't really get into birding until it was like after I finished my master's degree. Um, okay. So I, I had been working with birds for like five years, four or five years before I really got into birding which is maybe the opposite of how it goes for most people. but I think everybody's different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have the same thoughts. I, I mean, I, I grew up in Maine, mm. you know, terrific place to be a birder, went to Bowdoin College. Mm-hmm. And uh, and th- so I, every time I, people hear I'm from Bowdoin, oh, did you know so-and-so? He was a professor there. He's such a good birder. And I said, no, I didn't know him at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think actually one of my undergrad professors is a professor at Bowdoin College now. Oh, really? Cool. So, uh, what you right now? You are uh, fit, 
somewhere in your PhD project. How how far along in that are you? I am starting my third year. Um, okay. So, I, so I've done about two years. Um, and I, I don't have a feel for how long is that sort of a, <laughs> a field of study, is it, until you get your yeah, research I mean, neither, done? Ne- neither, neither do I. <laughs> I think, it, you know, it, it all depends on the person. Some people can finish in four years and some people it's more like seven years. So I'm, okay. I'm two years under my belt and definitely so, have so you, a, a ways I, to go and a lot of work to do. Some PhD students in science are sort of, you know, part-time doing their research based on grants and all sorts of things and part-time teaching assistants and part-time all sorts of other stuff. Is that how yours is going or are you pretty much full um, tilt begin your research? I'm mostly full tilt going on my research, although I, I have, I have done some teaching and I, and I will do, I'm not teaching now, but um, I will probably be teaching next year. Um, but otherwise I've, I've mostly been just focusing on my research for the last Very two cool. years. Very cool. Uh, so where do you see your career going from this? Are you going to look for a university job or more of a, a full research job or what, what would be your dream uh, career headed forward? Yeah, probably my ideal situation. Um, I, I've spent a lot of time when I'm, when I haven't been in school working for various nonprofits, mm-hmm. um, like the Peregrine Fund and Hawkwatch International and, mm-hmm. and organizations like that. And I would love to continue working for organizations like that after I get out of school. Uh, but I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily beholden to that. Um, but I think w- working in the nonprofit sector is, uh, I really enjoy it. There's a lot of freedom there. Um, you know, there's, there's challenges too associated with it, but just kind of the freedom and flexibility to be able to manage and run your own research project or group is is really appealing cool so i'm gonna pick your brain for a few little tidbits of uh, a trivia on raptors trivia on migratory birds you know little things you've learned over the years that uh, birders might be interested in hearing about do you have any stories oh geez um stories about just raptors in general uh, yeah yeah or, i mean yeah. Ra- raptors are they're a tough group uh, if you're a birder, um, I, I think it's underappreciated how difficult raptors are to identify. Um, and I, I, you know, one of the reasons I think they're so hard to identify is because you, you often see them at a pretty great distance compared mm-hmm. to, you know, passerines that you see usually really close. Um, and passerines also vocalize, so you have that extra ability to identify songbirds and, and, and other birds through their vocalizations. And you don't, you don't really have that with raptors. So it's all, it's all visual and it's usually a visual ID at a great distance, greater than you're used to with other birds. And so, <laughs> yes. um, you know, I think just, uh, if you want to get really good at raptor ID, it's as with anything, it's practice doing it a lot. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's also trying to get better at identifying birds at a distance too. And really focusing on that and you'll find that you know because raptors are so large you can detect them from a pretty great distance Mm -hmm. Um, and even at those great distances you can usually identify what the bird is to species um, even if the bird is quite far away and so it's a really fun challenge Um, it's a really difficult challenge and it takes a lot of time and effort and learning and you know i'm certainly still learning um but just taking the time to practice like distant raptor ID is 
uh, a really fun thing to learn. And, and I think um, it's a really useful thing to learn too, because you, you pick up little things that can help you identify other bird, uh, other you know birds that like the, the things that you learn from identifying raptors at a distance, you, you start to learn things about like the shape of the bird. Cause you can't see a lot of plumage details from a great right. distance. So you start looking for the shape or um, how the bird is flying, like how they flap uh, mm-hmm. the shape, um, the speed that they flap, how they circle. And, and those kinds of things can, can translate into identifying other birds at a distance, like seabirds or even passerines in flight, which is something that I'm still very much trying to work on and get better at. Um, but you, you just pick up little things that can help you identify all really all birds. It, it just kind of like widens your search radius of like, you don't need to be 10 feet away from a bird to visually, like visually ID it, you know, um, you, you can really identify birds from a much greater distance than maybe you think you can. For sure. I had Cameron Cox on as a guest a little while ago, mm-hmm. a few episodes ago, and he had, he went into that in some detail. He's done a lot of work at, at hawk watches and sea watches and uh, the uh, morning flight uh, count at uh, Cape May. And he had he went into a little bit of the thought process and, and how bird movement and uh, behavior in flight and things like that that I thought was just fascinating. Yeah, it's like every bird is slightly different, you know, and Cameron knows a heck of a lot more about that than I do. Like I, I went to the Cape May um, dawn songbird count one day mm-hmm. and oh, I, was that just crazy? Like, I was just blown away at the skill level of the people doing those counts. You know, there were just like these dinky little warblers flying over. It's In like, the dark. Oh, that's, a, that's a black throated <laughs> blue, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, what the, it just, it totally blew my mind that, that you could even, that that was even possible. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't even know that it was possible to identify songbirds in flight based on like their shape and how they flew. Um, I took I took Pete Dunn's uh, Falcon class once, mm-hmm. a two day stay on the Hawk Watch at Cape May at the end of September, and it didn't start till like, eight or nine or something like that. And so for the mornings, I would go over to the morning flight, and mm-hmm. I have to say that was one of the most memorable and astounding experiences of my birding life was yeah uh, yeah i mean you're sitting on this little dike and these birds are just blowing by you in the barely light i mean it's you know 5 15 5 30 mm-hmm. in the morning you can just barely see and birds are going by bing, 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 bing. <laughs> just like dozens and dozens and dozens of them and and the counters are using their little uh, they have these little things like a referee in baseball, clicking mm-hmm. thing, counting numbers off, and yep, uh, twenty-seven fifths uh, uh, and thirty-nine. Oh, wow! <laughs> yeah, was... I did that for one morning for like an hour, and it, mm-hmm. I still remember that it was one of the the more just kind of mind-blowing birding experiences that I've had in my life. Just to know that people that there's people out there skilled enough to be able to do that. Yeah, and it's something I. I don't know that I'll ever be at that level, but it's something that like you kind of strive for, you know, like, man, it'd be so great to be able to do something like that. Like Mm -hmm. knowing, you know, even if you just see a bird fly over and you just get kind of a little glimpse at it and just it, cause it drives me crazy knowing, knowing that like, if I see a bird and it flies over and I don't know what it is, but like I could, you know, like if Mm -hmm. I was skilled enough, I could identify that bird and it drives me nuts when I can't identify it because I know it's possible. It is a skill. I, another friend that I know, Brad Wagner, mm-hmm. uh, who birds in in uh, Kitsap County, uh, 
when when we go to point no point there he'll be there in the spring and uh we we set up our scopes and we're watching this and he's identifying oh well that's a that's a yellow warbler and that's a, a wilson's warbler and it's like they are 400 yards up in the air it's just like <laughs> unbelievable yeah. so yeah you see the short tail of the wings are the and it's just wow really cool uh skill sets yeah you're like i guess i see that but <laughs> i think I, I think i saw a bird i'm not right, sure right yeah. <laughs> i'm not seeing all the things that you're seeing but <laughs> but yeah, if you cool. if you spend enough time doing it and like you watch enough birds and you start seeing those little little differences between species you know mm-hmm yeah, it is fun to be around really good birders. And Neil, it's been fun talking to you and picking your brain about your raptor experiences and expertise. Uh, it sounds like you're just doing great on your research and uh, are gonna, we're going to learn a lot more about the migratory patterns and wintering habits of rough-legged hawks when you get your work published. Yeah, yeah, hope, hopefully we will. <laughs> yeah, I'll look forward to seeing it. Neil, I, I try to give uh, people a chance to let listeners know how they can reach out to you. How would somebody get a hold of you if they wanted to? Sure. You know, a lot of our rough-legged hawk work, um, we'll post little tidbits on social media. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we actually have a Facebook page. It's called the Rough-Legged Hawk Project. People can look up that page if they want, and they, they can message us through that page. Um, I also have my own, you know, personal um, Instagram account and uh, Twitter account. That's just my my full name. Um, I have a pretty unique name. Uh, yeah. Fortunate, fortunately, you, you can get away with that. Yeah, yeah. Good for yeah. You. Um, so folks can can find me there. Um, Perfect on, on those various social media platforms. Terrific. Neil, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. I will be uh, publishing this in a bit and make sure I let people know about it. So it's been really nice to get a chance to talk to you. And I'm hoping uh, that I'll get to see your research when it's done. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Take care now. You too. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode 96. I hope you enjoyed listening to Neil Proprocki and me talk about his work with raptors. By the time this episode drops, I'll be primarily finished with my Costa Rica visit. I managed to record a few episodes in advance of my travels so that I could just put those up as I was traveling, have them drop, and I didn't have to be uh, looking for guests and trying to record episodes from Costa Rica where I was concerned that internet might not be so great to do uploads and things like that. So stay tuned to hear from stories of my birding while in the tropics on future episodes. And again, thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding and good day.